you that don't know me, my name is Dave Jenkins. I am the teaching pastor here at Revive Christian. Short story of my family. I uh, grew up in Minnesota, spent 20 years abroad, 19 I guess. Uh, returned to the United States about seven years ago, lived in Chicago, always wanted to live in North Dakota. Finally got a way to show up and I'm here. Uh, I really feel privileged to be the gentleman who gets to teach most Sundays here at Revive. Right now we are working through Galatians. Let me kind of give you a quick summary of it and then we're going to hop into the text. Um, you know, add a little bit about this church. Most of us that I know fairly well that come here to Revive, most of us come out of some church system that left us wounded, left us broken, left us going, how do I process when Good people have done things that have hurt. And that's a pretty common experience in the Christian faith. Revive has been a place where many of us have kind of found new life. And one of the things that happens when people are wounded at church is it's almost kind of a natural process of people have left a dark side of their life and they've discovered new life and they get really excited about it. Kind of like these kids that ran up here. And then you're thinking, I don't ever want to have anything of the past behind you. You start looking for something that will protect you from the wounds. And a lot of times what we will turn to as human beings is we'll look for like a celebrity leader or we'll look for some religious system. And we think if we can just get everything right and protect our little understanding, then we're never going to fall into some dark places again. About 2,000 years ago, Paul had started some churches in the Roman province of Galatia, the, I hope my memory is right, the cities of Lystra, Derby, Derby, and Iconium. And he had stepped away as he's a, he's a missionary. He moves around. And when he stepped away, some gentlemen who were practitioners of Judaism with a lot of laws stepped in, and they started to tell all of these young Christians, you've got to add all of these legal requirements. Paul wrote this letter of Galatians saying, what we've got is freedom in Christ. And if you read the text as it's really written, it's, for lack of a better term, it's an ornery email. It's one of those emails that you get that hurts a bit to read. But it's God speaking through him. Today we're going to talk about the miracle of adoption. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 to 4, verse 1. You're going to see even some photos behind me as we talk. You're going to notice a couple of families here at Revive. Our photos are going to be up there. I'm going to try not to make any of those families look heroic because one of them's mine, and I know I'm not very heroic. But I do want you to know that there is a metaphor of our relationship with the Lord that's called adoption. And I do think I can tell you, if you see any family up here, if when you get over, you go, I want to ask a question, grab one of us and talk. I want to tell you two things that when parents who have adopted start to candidly talk and say we're going to move past the brochures that the adoption agencies will put up, or they be really honest with you, two things jump out to most of us. One, adoption starts with some type of traumatic, painful event that came to a child. Something went really wrong. That's the reason that child was available. That's the reason it was in the foster system or wasn't an orphanage or had been left on the side of the road or in a field. And no matter how good 
The adopted family is for that child. That pain will always be there. It's always there. It never goes away. It's never forgotten, but it is redeemed. Second thing I want you to know, a friend of mine, Brett Shrek, pointed this out to me one time, and I thought, Brett, you said it so well, so I couldn't quite get my brain around. Occasionally, people will ask my family, we've got three biological, two adopted kids, and they'll say, do you really love your adopted kids as much as your biological? And our joke is, well, actually, I don't. I like the adopted kids a lot more than my biological. They're just easier to get along with. But when you adopt someone, it's a miracle, the Holy Spirit. It sets into your heart and it changes you. Where love that should be a natural outflowing of just our biology flows out. It's the Spirit moving. And we're going to talk about that, the miracle of adoption. It's like a, a blending of several recipes, of things coming together that normally don't come together. And I'm going to show you something. You've got to peel onions, you've got to cry. You have no assurances of how it will end. It's just going to be stepping into a painful journey. But you trust God to make up for your failings. Now, some of you guys know that I like to take a little pride in my cooking, but I'm, I'm not nearly as good cook as my wife yet. And I like to scratch things together. I like to go, okay, what do I got? I don't want to run to the grocery store. How can I make this work? And uh, some of you... I've been in the habit of stopping by my home with food, and I appreciate it. Somebody in this church stopped by my home a couple of weeks ago with uh, a venison roast. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to have our family feast, and my plan is to take that venison roast and turn it into venison chili. My mom used to make venison chili. The only thing is my mom's not alive, and I can't find the recipe. <laughs> you know what I'm going to do? I've got a goat chili recipe from Africa, and I'm going to try my goat Africa chili recipe with North Dakota venison and see how it turns out. You might think in a couple weeks this is great, or you go, oh, just stick to preaching. Don't do any more cooking, Dave. <laughs> but this is my dad's trick. It's probably bachelor cooking. All good cooking for a bachelor starts with a frying pan full of bacon grease and onions, and that's going to be the first thing I'm going to do. And... Uh, here you go. I'm going to cut an onion. And uh, you know this, this brown stuff, I'm not going to throw that into the pot. That's dirt. i got to peel it off. And we're going to see, is my illustration going to work? i got to get the brown, icky stuff off. My wife is probably going, oh, husband, you don't know how to peel an onion. Don't put words in my mouth. <laughs> I won't. Well, I will, because I like you, and I like teasing you. Let's see, I'm being close. Brown icky stuff is off. Scooping it away. And then I got to start cutting. And I had an Indian friend who told me always cut against the grain.
Okay. Here's what I want you to know. Just like peeling an onion, if we're going to really understand what the gospel does in your life, you got to strip off the stuff. You can't eat. Then you got to cut it up. And you step into places that you're exploring. And if we're truly honest, and good cooks, we're going to cry. It hurts. I'm going to ask you guys to stand. I'm going to read the text that I'm going to preach on. And then make some comments. And I can hear. We've got a few little ones here. I won't try to talk too long. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ like a garment. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, instead he is under the guardians and stewards until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elemental forces of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Please be seated. Okay. Talking about what does God do in our lives. When we are baptized, there's many things that happen in our life when we're baptized. When we go under the water and we're united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. But here's one of the things, one of the illustrations is, is we put on Christ like a new set of clothes. And something that I found this week as I'm reading commentaries, there's some discussion, how is baptism like circumcision? Because again, both of them are an initiation right into the community of faith. And one commentator pointed this out, and I'm embarrassed I forgot his name. I should have put it in the notes. The baptism is not like circumcision, because circumcision creates this physical mark. Baptism doesn't do that. It creates no physical marks. And if we're honest with the biology, circumcision only applies to one gender, not all. It's a unique ceremony into the body of Christ, into the family of God. And as it does that, we are baptized, we're born again, the Spirit comes in our life, our sins are washed away, we start a new life, and it's like getting a new set of clothes. There's no single uniform for us. Now, one of the things, and we're going to talk about this in a few moments, we're going to look at some divisions of humanity, and I'm going to make some comments, then try to say, and we're all part of one family. Our human nature does try to divide us a bit. And some of that is a little bit of natural. Like, you know, I've got my Janet and I and my five kids. We're one nuclear family. And, and none of you are part of our nuclear family. That's just who we are. Some of it might be a language we speak or a race that we have or something that makes us different. Maybe it's our religious heritage. But it's easy with all of these things that in some way kind of give us a marker, give us a way to say this is part of my community to start to look at others in a way that's less than godly. And I'm going to, I'm still somewhat of a rebellious child. I don't think I've told you this. My nuclear family knows this. When I was 
late teens, early 20s, and I started driving. And then when I started driving for my dad, one of his counsels was, don't you start driving if you're dirty. If you're going to be traveling a distance, get yourself shaved, showered, put on a clean shirt. Because if you break down, you don't want to walk up to a farmer's house dirty, stinky, unshaven, and beat somebody with a big, gar, big dog and a gun. You want to look like a gentleman when you're in hurry. I'm looking at some of you may have read your dad's give the same story. That was his counsel. Well, I admit this. My dad had gotten me afraid of enough of traveling. I told you a few of my, I got afraid of traveling things, and I generally followed his counsel. When I got a little older, I started playing with my dad's idea. And my family makes fun of this. I trade hats when I go from border to border. Like, I start driving in Bismarck. I'm going to go see my kids in Chicago. I'm an NDSU fan, so I get to Fargo. <laughs> I'm in Moorhead. I become a Vikings fan. I cross the Mississippi River. I'm in Wisconsin. I'm a Packers fan. And when I get to Illinois, I become a Cubs fan. That's me driving. My family makes fun of me. Some of it's me making fun of my dad. It's fun to have my dad. There's a lot. Just do what you told me, Dad. <coughs> Silly thing. I didn't know this until just a couple of years ago. If you wear a Packers hat in Wisconsin on the Monday after a game with the Vikings fans, Packers fans will talk to you about what they really think about Viking fans. It's a little bit spooky. But sadly, I won't read you this long commentary. We as human beings have sins that are part of our being, that we've absorbed through history, that create a lot of things, that make us cry like onions. I, was, I have a habit of reading a bunch of translations and then commentaries. I found a commentary this week. Maybe I won't even show you it. I don't think I'd want to show it to you. It was written in 1987. 23 years after the civil rights. The gentleman who was writing the commentary worked the Greek and Hebrew well, then started to apply it and use the N-word at the application. And I read it and thought, wow. Now he was trying to say these are the divisions and we need to heal. But I was thinking his editor let him get by with that 23 years after the Civil Rights Act. We have some deep wounds here. Now, the gospel says these deep wounds are not denied, but we all become family. We put on a new set of clothes, and I don't know what we're going to wear when we get to heaven, but I'm pretty confident all these hats aren't going to matter when we get there. The divisions that are listed, I broke them down into three categories. There's ethnic or religious heritage where Paul says it's neither Jew nor Greek, it's an economic division, it's neither slave nor free, it's a gender division, neither male nor female. A few little things I want you to notice. God's sovereign purposes are worked out in those divisions. He will bring good out of it. Second, some of these divisions I think are created by God. For instance, the male-female one. But some of these divisions are the results of our sin. And I think God graciously keeps bringing us back to his intent. 
We're on a journey as Christ followers, trusting that our church family is becoming a model of what should look like in the final resurrection. I don't quite know what the resurrection is going to be like. I don't know all these things that are coming. I read it. I try to understand it. Occasionally, I try to preach it, and it scares me to death when I try to preach it because I'm sure I don't have it right. But I'm going to guess of two things that I think are closer to what it's going to look like in the end that happened to revive is one, we get all these kids up here and all that enthusiasm. I think that's going to be our spirits when the Lord returns. And then when we're sitting downstairs eating this meal and we're all family and our food's all kind of jumbled up, that's what it's going to be like. Talk about these divisions. The first one that I mentioned is ethnic or religious. This is where he says, and there's no Greek or Jew. These divisions, my understanding of scripture, they started in the Tower of Babel. They started with human sin. And it was because God had called people and said, fill the earth, and instead our humanity said, no, we're going to stay here. We're going to build something with our own pride, and we're going to make ourselves look good. And even though God chose the single seed of Abraham, that would be the seed that would come to Christ, which would create our family in Christ, the Jewish people who were part of that seed started to look at themselves and see themselves through a lens of pride. And that pride is consistently confronted through the Old and New Testament. One of the examples that jumps to my mind quickest is the story of Ruth. And then as we get to the New Testament, a few scriptures I'll mention. One, we have the Great Commission where Jesus says, go into all the world to the ethnos of the world, all these different ethnic Things. And we get to Acts 2, and everyone hears the gospel spoken in their own language. In unique languages, the type that don't make, oh, these are the major three that everyone should know. No, it's very unique ones. I think there's a tastiness to the gospel, where God takes our old divisions and turns it into something that fleshes out the gospel and makes us understand it in a deeper way. Second division is ethnic or economic division. The term is slave or free. And uh, I may push against some of your common theologies. There is an idea that sometimes when we said in church, amongst church people, is again, there's no sin that's worse than the other. They all separate us from God, which is true. But if you read through Paul's writing, on occasion, he'll give a list of really good things that are the spirit and really bad things that are really the spirit. One of those lists is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. And some translations will say kidnapping, others will say slave trading. If you're reading through the Old Testament, you're going to find moments where there's, here's the law, here's how to deal with a slave. You'll go through the New Testament, and you'll find moments where Paul says, here's some guidelines of how masters and slaves should work themselves out. But I think back in the deepest part of God's people's spirits, they knew slavery was an atrocious evil. And their own story says that the Exodus story was a brutal thing. And God's people are called to be liberators. And when God gives his law in Leviticus chapter 25, there's this idea of jubilee that every 50 years, all of the slaves are set free. And when Jesus starts to define his ministry in Luke chapter 4, he says, I've been called to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sights to the blind, to freedom of the captives. He's talking about the ideas of jubilee. It seems to me 
is there's these economic divisions that are part of the Old Testament of slave and free. That's God's intent, and I'm stretching it a little bit here. If you read through Matthew chapter 19, there's a discussion about divorce. And Jesus says, because of your own evil hearts, these were the laws that were given to deal with divorce. And I think the Lord sometimes knows, these people are going to make such a mess. I've just got to kind of guide it through so the wounds aren't as deep as they could. Saying that, I think the Lord recognizes we're going to come with economic divisions. Some of us will show up in a couple of weeks, and a few of us probably could go out and buy steaks for everybody in real estate. Some of us are going to show up with hot dogs and beets. All of that is brought together as one family. And the Lord's intention is to bring justice for us all. Third division is gender division. Male or female. A few of you are probably even asking, because you've seen some of the things I've written, watched me preach a little bit. A few folks are probably trying to figure out, is Dave a complementarian where he thinks there's certain divisions between men and women that go back to the beginning of time? that are always this way and it's always got to be this way? Or am I an egalitarian where I think, oh, there's divisions, but that's all caused by sin, which should all just be equaled up. I'm not going to give you the full answer today. But here's a few things I want you to know. It seems to me these gender distinctions were created by God. There's male and female. He created them. That's what's said in Genesis chapter 127. And it seems to me as I read through Old and New Testament, there are times where there are some very specific distinctions that are made between men and women in some very specific ways that things are to be done. The scripture I quote in the Old Testament is about clothing, the ones in the New Testament is what's supposed to go on in local churches. Yet, this is what troubles me, because frankly, I tend to be a complementarian, but I use the word flexible. When I read through scripture, I find that the Bible so consistently confronts the exploitation of women that if something's going wrong where a woman is being mistreated, she's being treated in an unjust way, God's people are to speak into it. The one that I threw up here is Numbers chapter 27, which tells the story of some daughters of Zoholophat who have lost their inheritance, and God speaks and says, we've got to deal with these women justly. And something else that jumps out to me is every time when I can read the Bible and think, okay, here's the methodology, here's the rules, I read just a little farther along into the text, and a story pops up where a woman provides leadership that breaks the rules. I listed a couple here. One that jumps out to me is the story in Judges of Deborah, where it's really obvious as you read through it, she is going to be used as a messenger for God, and a woman is going to lead the military victory because a man couldn't walk with enough faith. There's the story of Esther, and then if you read through Acts chapter 21, you'll find a man named Philip who has daughters who are prophets and are speaking God's messages. So, frankly, here's where I'm at. My wife and I aren't exactly even on the same page on this one. If I hope I don't get in trouble when I go home, but Janet would probably lead a little more egalitarian. I'd probably lead a little more.
more complementarian, and you can probably guess what I know I'm bringing my bias to. We joke that our theology of gender is primarily flexible. And here's the wisdom that I've learned. An old missionary pointed this out to me one time. Said, if you ever have to work a long time with somebody that you know you're never going to agree with them, like the person you're married to, go the extra measure to submit to them and to serve them. Make your competition who can be the kindest, the gentlest, the most submissive, the greatest servant to one another. And things will generally work out that way. Mutual submission is probably my thing of gender. Saying that, I want to now tell the story. This is the illustration of what our family is like. It's adoption. J.I. Packer, in his work, Knowing God, says this, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher than even justification. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, is greater. I had a university professor in seminary named Ed Matthews who took me to a text in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read just a few verses. I listed 1 to 11. We'll just read 3 to 6. Paul, writing by the Spirit, keeps working this themes of adoption. He says in Ephesians 1, Praise the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us within the beloved. I remember my seminary professor, Ed Matthews, walking into class for a theology of missions course. And the first thing he said was, you have to understand who God is. And Ed went to this chapter and said, you know, I, I like to read the Bible historically. I like to start and gather my major thoughts from the start. I'm not going to start in Genesis chapter 1. I'm starting in Ephesians. And this is what I want you to know. Young people who are preparing to be missionaries or pastors or teachers, our God was a redeemer before he was a creator. And I'll never forget, and I'm going to try to tell Ed's words again, Ed saying that before this whole thing got started, before the Lord started creating this earth, he knew where it was going to go. He knew that he would create a world that was good. He knew that he was going to create us humans. He knew he was going to create male and female. And he knew what the story would be in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. He knew that we would betray him, that we would throw everything away, and every one of us would do destructive things and the only way that he would be able to redeem his creation would be to take the life of his own son. We're a, a church made up of people with little kids or those who once had little kids. Or those who will soon have little kids. Maybe I'm going to speak a few words of where I think this is going. If I started building something and I knew it was going to take the life of my son, I'd stop. I'd tear it down. God knew that was what was coming. And he kept creating anyway. He was a redeemer before he was a creator. 
adoption story begins as we follow Christ. We're part of Abraham's seed. We're part of family. We're family despite our different DNA. And this is what it's like. As children, Paul uses an illustration of what it would be like in a Greek household or a Roman household where a man and a woman would have children and if they were wealthy, they had slaves. And when the children were first born, the children didn't have the wisdom to live. And the man and the woman, the husband and wife, they couldn't manage every detail, so they would delegate much of the instruction of their children to a slave. And the child would grow up under a slave's guidance, and though that child would have the full inheritance, he still practically had to live like a slave, and he actually had to take instructions from a slave. And a child growing up might be even gently cared for by that slave, but he's hungering for something more. He knows this isn't right. And today in our world, as human beings pursuing the Lord and being part of Christ's family, we ourselves will wrestle with this. We know we should follow the Lord. We look for guidance. Sometimes it's a set of rules. Sometimes it's a certain year. But we recognize that these sets of rules are controlling. And sometimes we may even step aside and we find something new, and it's a spirit of our own age or a place of our own age or something that will say, this is the system, this is the way to understand the world, and we try to make it work. And we're like broken up, crying out for more. The word of God says, when time was at its most perfect moment, God sent his son, born from a woman, to a time under the rule of law to redeem those from the law. I'm still amazed at this one. I don't think my mind will ever get around it. Our God was a redeemer before he was a creator. And then he waited thousands of years for that perfect moment in time. I couldn't wait thousands of years. I couldn't hold back my wrath or my love for thousands of years. And waiting for everything to line up perfectly. The right moments of history. And then God sent his son, named Jesus, born of a virgin woman named Mary. We celebrated it a few months ago with Christmas. Into this right time, where the empires and the languages were all right, so that we could be redeemed from the rule of law. Now, as that happens, here's some of the miracles that happen that you can never explain with just biology, just something that happened in a hormone moved to me and I felt this way. As adopted children, we have the spirit of Jesus living in us. Each one of us who puts our faith has it living in us. And when that happens, we speak to God with an intimacy of a child. Those first battles of a child And those of you that have had that baby, you know this, you're holding the baby and you start just kind of mimicking and the child starts to mimic and it looks at you and it makes eye contact and it says a few things. And frankly, in a little competition in my house, it was, well, the child say, Tata or Dada or Baba, which would be something referred to Abba to me, or is it going to just say, Mama, which one's going to come first? And a child makes one of these sounds and we as the parents interpret it as this is the hunger it has for me, and really it is a hunger for me. 
And as God comes into our life, and the Spirit lives in us, we have that level of intimacy where God is looking at us and saying, I know your first battles are going to be for me, and I'm going to wrap my arms around you and care for you and nurture you to adulthood. Whatever you say, I will love you. As this ends, we come every day broken. An adopted family, frankly, we want to tell you it's all perfect. It's not. There's wounds that are out there. We carry these wounds of our past, our disabilities, our habits, things that are, are part of us, who we are, and it's whether we're biological or adopted, whether our life has seemed to be good or bad, it's all there. There's wounds no matter how we cut it. And what we do is as we are pursuing God and he's pursuing us, we move from a relationship that was rooted in slavery to one that has the intimacies of a family. So that at church, when the little kids come down here and we giggle and laugh and we want their enthusiasm, we know this is my hunger. This is the reminder of who we are. And as in a couple of weeks when we're downstairs and we've got all of this food and we know some have had some money and have really sacrificed and some have had not much money but they've really sacrificed and somehow we all put it together and we're all eating a big meal with a big plate of food with things that really should fit together but it's our family. This is the intimacies. And Paul will be writing to the Galatians and saying this is what it is like. Don't ever go back to this first flaw. Celebrate as a family. And I want you to know this today. As you step out of here, as you get up Monday morning and life is difficult, know that you are loved. You're that adopted child that the Lord has pulled close and given a new life. And your most intimate battles are of him who loves you as you are. Let me ask you to stand for our benediction. May God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. All glory to God.